0: Well, happy Thanksgiving, if I haven't had a chance to say that to you yet. We're glad you're here. If you are visiting with us, as tends to happen on long weekends, especially when there's a holiday, uh, I am Pastor Mark, one of the pastors on staff here. And uh, if you have any questions about the church or anything that you hear or saw today, please feel free to grab me following the service. I would love to, uh, to meet you and to see how we could help you out this day. Well, so far in this series, as we've been walking through the 12 disciples, we've talked about some pretty regular, pretty familiar guys. We talked about Peter and James and John. And so this week, we're going to start moving into that realm of some of the lesser-known, lesser-mentioned disciples. Uh, as we talk about one that you probably are somewhat aware of still, a guy by the name of Philip. We're going to talk about Philip today. Now, Philip is friends with Andrew. He's friends with, with uh, Peter, his brother Peter as well, because he comes from the same region. He comes from the same place called Bethsaida, which is a small fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. And his calling to follow Jesus is really around the same time, found in John chapter 1, and is very, very basic, probably one of the most basic of the calling stories that we have of those that are recorded, because here's how it goes. He encounters Jesus, and Jesus says, Philip, follow me. And Philip goes, okay, and and follows him. Now, I'm sure there was more to it, but that's what we have recorded in in John chapter 1. What we can tell about Philip, though, is from looking at his entire life of what is recorded in Scripture and from the impressions that leaves with us, he was one who likely started his search for salvation, his search for spiritual truth with John the Baptist, like, like some of the other apostles began their time. And that seeking out of salvation through John the Baptist led him to Jesus Christ. And at that time, he started to follow. He started to believe in what he was hearing and experiencing, even though he may not fully have understood everything. There's some sense in the conversations, even one that comes near the end of the Gospels, where he didn't fully understand yet, like a lot of the disciples, until following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's what we know from what's in the Scripture. A little lesser known, but actually he shows up quite often. Philip, for example, uh, is recorded as the one who recruited skeptical Bartholomew. Now, we'll talk about Bartholomew next week, but he was, Philip's the one who recruited him to come follow Jesus. It's also believed that Philip was present at the wedding in Canaan, where Jesus turned the water into wine. Philip is present at the feeding of the 5,000. Philip is present when the disciples a little later on encounter some Uh, some Greek pilgrims who want to come find Jesus. And and Philip talks to them, leading us to believe that perhaps he had some, some Greek roots or spoke Greek and was able to converse with them. But the interesting thing is, Philip doesn't bring them directly to Jesus. Who does Philip bring them to? He brings them to Andrew. Why? Well, we learned week two, Andrew is the revealer. Andrew is the one who brings people to Jesus. And he had that reputation to the point where Philip brought these guys to Andrew, and then Andrew brought them to Jesus. And then at the Last Supper, we see Philip is part of the conversation that takes place around the Last Supper, where as Jesus is explaining what is about to happen to take place and the implications of that, Philip says the phrase, we'll show us the Father, and that will be enough. If we had time to unpack that, we would come to see that, that he believed and desired to be fully in with what was taking place, but still had some questions and some doubts as to what exactly Jesus was talking about. Now, in obedience to the Great Commission, like all the the disciples, following Jesus' death and resurrection, they went out to proclaim the good news through preaching and through teaching. And Philip's journeys took him to places like northern Africa, and they took him to a place like Greece in Syria, even into what's modern-day central Turkey was where he spent a lot of his time. And in fact, his ministry in Turkey was extremely effective to the point where it was so effective that his preaching and some of the miracles associated with him cost him his life because that is where he was martyred. As the story goes, he's in central Turkey preaching and teaching and healing. God was doing miracles through him, and word of this had reached the proconsul's wife, uh, the leader of the area, and she came to hear, and she herself was healed and became a Christian. Now this angered the proconsul of the area so much so that he arrested Philip, had him tortured, and then sentenced to death. And he was sentenced to death, like, like many of the apostles, for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. For preaching the cross of Christ, Philip, like a lot of them, was placed on a cross. But he wasn't just placed on a cross there to hang and die. He was placed on a cross and then he threw rocks at him until he died. That's how he gave his life, never recanting what he had committed himself to. Now, over the centuries, if you travel these areas, you'll see that that Philip is associated with with the movement of Christianity in these regions. But he's also associated with what's referred to as the Latin cross. And now the Latin cross, which we can see on the screen there, Philip's cross also includes two loaves of bread on either side of it, which is a reference to one of the most well-known passages that he's associated with, a passage that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, one of Jesus' most well-known miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, many of us here are going to gather later today, possibly tomorrow, and we are going to participate in a feast of food laid before us. Now, if you are the fortunate person who gets to cook and prepare all that, it may feel like you're cooking for 5,000. But, but hopefully you're not, because that would be a modern-day miracle if you were able to pull that off. But after the meal is prepared and cooked and plated and consumed, after all of that, before we slip into our turkey comas, I want to encourage and remind you to express gratitude to the ones who prepared those meals, especially if they nailed the stuffing because there's nothing better than stuffing. (laughs) You know, some families may even sit around the table and talk about what they're thankful for this year. They may share some of their thankfulness from from the year that has just passed. Other families, they may find this a little more difficult because they know that they have a long weekend, but they're going back to work on Monday or Tuesday, and, and, and that's been a stressful year for them. There are some who when family comes together, it's, there's this tension and, and there's challenges amongst the coming together of these people. There are others who maybe sit around the table and as I mentioned earlier, there's a, an empty seat that wasn't empty a year prior. And so it's hard to gather together and to maintain this sense of thanksgiving upon our hearts. I have no desire today to minimize the difficulties in people's lives. But I do want to encourage you. I do hope to point you a little bit towards what the foundational motivation of our thanksgiving is and suggest to you before I get too far ahead of myself that it's not found solely in those things. You see, in all seasons of life, we have so much to be thankful for, especially upon the fact that we live in this great nation of Canada where we have incredible freedoms, where we can stand here and gather and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. We should never cease to be thankful for that. We have access to incredible services for those who who are without, those who have social needs, medical needs, physical needs. Other countries in the world, you would simply go without. In Canada, we can be thankful that those things are available. Relative to the rest of the world, we are a wealthy, wealthy population. And we celebrate Thanksgiving on the proper day. Right, Luke? We can be thankful for that. Now, Thanksgiving is not explicitly a Christian holiday by any means. But it certainly does align with Christian values and Christian sentiments. And with that theme of thanksgiving upon our hearts and upon our minds, regardless of where you find yourself, of what you've been going through, the season you're going through in this current time, I invite you to consider the passage we're going to walk through here today. And to consider the motivation, the basis for that which you are thankful. So if you wish to follow along, we're going to be looking at the feeding of the 5,000. Recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 1. You find that in your Bibles or on your phones or your tablets. And as we find that passage, we, find, we see that Jesus is gathered with his disciples and a large crowd has come to see him. And, and they're intrigued by Jesus. And through this single encounter that they're going to have with him in this story, they respond with thanksgiving towards him. And they're thankful because he's given them this monetary gift of bread. But they have yet to understand that, that they can have so much more. They have yet to understand that they truly can have everlasting life with Jesus. And so we, like them, as we walk through the story, can see that we have every reason to be thankful towards Jesus Christ and have incredible thankfulness towards him. But Jesus' ultimate desire is for us to respond to his gift of forgiveness and to respond positively to the gift of eternal life he puts before us. Now, the distinction between these things, the distinction between being thankful for the bread and being thankful for the gift of Christ can be boiled down to a, to a phrase that we can refer to such as receiving life from God or doing life with God. From God or with God. Walk through the story with me. I'll show you what I mean by that. So Jesus has arrived on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, just north of Jerusalem, up into this area of Bethesda, a fishing village where many of his disciples are, are, are from. It's a familiar region to Jesus as well. He frequented the area. He visited many times. And it's also Philip's old stomping grounds. Now, the people of this area, they know about Jesus. And they certainly know of the news of his miracles. And that news has been traveling fast throughout the whole region. And so when Jesus and his disciples land on the shore in this small village, there's a buzz that takes over the whole town. And Jesus and his disciples, they don't stop in the town, but they, they pass through, and they go to the other side, and Jesus leads them up onto a hillside, and he sits down to begin teaching them. But as he turns around and sits to begin teaching his disciples, he looks down the slope of the hill, and as far as he can see is just a mass of people who are starting to move towards him. Now, this mass of people is made up of, of those who live in the region, mostly peasants who are from, this farming, or from these uh, fishing villages. These are hard-working merchants who are heavily taxed, who are often oppressed by Rome, who is occupying the region. These are poor people who don't often have access to some of the social things that they would require, some of the medical things that they require. And so there are many needs and many ailments that exist among them. And Jesus is sympathetic towards these people. He, he loves these people. He knows the needs that they have. But also, they have been very receptive and very open to his teaching, and in particular, to his miracles. And so as they gather at the base of the hill, he begins to teach, not just his disciples, but now he teaches to the whole crowd who has gathered before him. And he teaches for quite a while, and it's starting to get late. And he knows it's getting late, not just because the sun is starting to descend, but also he can feel that hunger starting to come in the pit of his stomach. And he figures, well, if I'm getting hungry, there's a good chance that they are as well. And so he turns to Philip, Philip, who's, who's sitting right there with one of the apostles, sitting right nearby Jesus, and he says to him, Philip, you're, you know these people, you're, you're from this region, you grew up in this area. He says, Philip, where shall we buy bread for all of these people to eat? It's Such an impossible question, such a seemingly impossible scenario that is related to Philip. Philip, do you know any bakers in the area? Philip, do you know any merchants in the area? Do you know anybody who might have a stockpile of bread for 5,000 per chance in this land that has no preservatives, Right? is the question presented to Philip. But, you know, Jesus actually wasn't too worried about the answer because Scripture tells us John includes this following that verse. He he says, Jesus only asked this to test him because he already knew what he was going to do. He looks at Philip and says, Philip, do you have a solution to this problem? And he's testing Philip. Philip, are you going to look at the problem or are you going to look at the one who's asking you the question? Are you going to look at the fact that we have a huge problem and limited resources, or are you going to realize the one of whom is speaking to you? But Philip is baffled by the question and by the how could we possibly do this. And so his his response simply is, buy bread for all of these people. That would take like, like, like half a year's salary, and even then we could only have enough that each person would have like a bite. That's the most we could possibly provide. And so as Jesus and Philip are starting to have this conversation, along comes Andrew. Andrew comes walking up, bringing somebody, surprise, Andrew, bringing somebody to Jesus. And Andrew brings the small boy to Jesus because that's what Andrew did. And Andrew interrupts the conversation between Jesus and Philip and says, Jesus, it's, it's not much, but this boy here, he, he, has, he has five loaves and he has two fish. Could this help at all? Now, we don't know the motivation behind Andrew. Maybe Andrew was simply thinking, well, I just need to provide food for the master. And this boy has food, so at least we can feed Jesus. We don't know if that's what he was thinking or if he had a deeper faith that maybe Jesus could do something miraculous with this incredibly small but important resource. Well, Jesus doesn't address Andrew's question directly because he simply says, you know what? There is plenty of grass for all these people, so have them all sit down. And we're told that 5,000 men plus women and children on top of that, sat down on the grass. Jesus took these loaves and this fish from the boy, and he held it and he gave thanks to his heavenly Father, and then he began to distribute it to all of the people. Now, nobody really could understand or describe what was taking place, but, but, but as somebody was tearing a piece of bread off, or as somebody took a, a fish out of the basket, it, it, just, it just never seemed to run out. And they couldn't figure out what was going on or how this was happening. But gratefully, they just kept ripping and pulling the fish out of the basket and taking bread and taking fish out. And it just never ran out. Was, there was never one of those awkward buffet moments where there's like one egg's Benedict left. And you're like, ooh, do I take it? Or would that be a social faux pas to take the last one? Never happened. There was more than enough. So much so that people didn't just have a bite. People ate until they were full. And even then, Jesus says, now go around and gather the leftovers. Gathered the leftovers, and it says they filled 12 baskets with leftovers. Now, as you can imagine, the people were blown away, completely blown away by this. And how do they respond? With thankfulness. They respond with thankfulness. And they started having these visions of what could be. Like, Like, what would happen if Jesus was in power? What would happen if Jesus was the one who gave us our provision in this region? What happened if Jesus could overthrow Rome? And they determine among themselves that they need to pronounce Jesus as king, whether he wants to be or not. Well, Jesus wants none of that. It's not the purpose for which he came. It's it's not time yet for him to take any sorts of steps along that line. And so sensing this building response among the people, he goes to the disciples, he goes, guys, you need to get in a boat and go to Capernaum. Go there, I'll meet you there later. And as he sends them off on a boat to Capernaum, he heads further up the mountain to be alone and to pray. And now the people of that region had come to see Jesus for a few reasons that day. You know, I'm sure there were those who came to him who, who had some intrigue at this, this spiritual hunger within them. And, and they came to Jesus thinking, you know, he is one who teaches with insight. He teaches with authority. And they had a spiritual hunger that needed to be fed. I think there are some who probably also came for more selfish reasons, who had personal needs, who had ailments that they were hoping would be addressed because the news of Jesus' miracles had reached their ears. And so I'm sure there are people who came to see if they could be healed. And whenever you have something like that going on, a good teacher who's going to do miracles, I'm sure there are those who are just looking for a good show at the same time. It's like knowing that if you sit through the timeshare, at the end of the appointment, you'll get the free cruise. So I'll just sit here and endure this part so I get the the reward at the end, and none of them were disappointed that day. None of them were disappointed regardless of the reasons they came. Nobody was disappointed because Jesus taught and he fed that spiritual hunger that was there, but he also performed one of his most sensational miracles that fed their curiosity and fed their bellies. Now, there's nothing wrong with feeding people. Jesus cared for these people. He knew their needs. He took great pleasure in wanting to meet their needs. He even later on would teach his disciples, he would tell us that we should be doing the same thing, that we should be meeting the needs of people around us. He said in Matthew 25 that that we should be feeding and visiting and providing for people. He, He said it this way. He says, for when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me, you invited me in. See, at this part in the the story, this part in the Gospel of John, John is presenting Jesus as the supplier of human needs. And all of the people receive and they respond with thankfulness and see him worthy to be their king. But why? Why do they see him worthy to be their king? From what has transpired so far in the story, the only logical reason we can see that they want him to be their king is based upon personal gain. Something along the lines of, if Jesus was king... Now, if he was king, we would never have to worry about a famine again. We'd never have to worry about sickness and these physical ailments anymore. We would never have to worry about the oppression of the Romans anymore. That sounds like a pretty good king. Like, like who could argue with that? No famines, no illness, no oppression. Sounds like a wonderful utopia to live in. And so when they look at Jesus, what do they see? When they look at Jesus, they seek to use him to receive blessings. They want to use him to receive the gifts. Jesus becomes a means to an end for these people. And if this actually came to fruition, where Jesus is king and they are subjects, we could define that relationship as life from God. As life from God. What does that mean? Well, it would sound something like this. As long as you keep blessing me, as long as you keep providing me, With my daily bread, I will respond with thankfulness. As long as you keep doing your part, I will keep obeying. I will keep doing my part. Life from God. Now, there's a few problems with this situation, with this definition of our relationship and how we relate to God. The first of which is that that is not the sort of relationship Jesus came to bring. And we'll get more to that later. Put that aside for just a moment. The second problem is this, if that is the style of relationship that we long or that we currently have with Jesus, then this sort of a relationship is defined by a conditional relationship. It's conditional upon him doing his part, and if he does his part, I'll do mine. It's conditional upon certain rules and certain definitions of bread that we impose upon the situation. Because quite often in something like this, we're the ones who determine what qualifies as bread we're determining what qualifies as blessing. As long as I have financial security, as long as I have success at work, as long as I can date the prettiest girl or be seen with the most popular guy, as long as I can have a stress-free life, as long as my kids obey me, as long as God answers my prayers the way that I want him to, as long as I receive my daily bread and feel well and feel wholesome, then I will respond with thankfulness. And when we don't, what happens? When that doesn't happen, how do we respond? With concern. We start to respond with doubts doubts about ourselves, doubts about God, and maybe we get a little pouty. Am I the only one who gets a little pouty? Probably not. I get a little pouty sometimes. This explains the crowd's initial zeal when Jesus supplies bread miraculously to them. Where, on one level, it is the right thing to do. On one level, the right thing to do is to feed the hungry but on another level, it's like the Apple Corporation just pulled up to a high school and starts handing out iPhones to everybody. Now, back in verse 5, when Jesus asked Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all of these people? John adds that important, critical verse in this whole passage that Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. And I think that applies at two levels. I think at the first level it applies at the surface because it refers to Jesus already had a mind that somehow, some way, he was going to provide for the needs of these people. He was going to feed them before they went home that day. But I think also on a deeper level, Jesus already knew in his mind he was going to seize the opportunity in order that he could use that to open the door for even greater revelation into their lives. And so as we pick up the story in John chapter 6 and verse 25, We see that it's the next day now. Jesus has retired up the mountain. The disciples have been sent off across to Capernaum. And then on the next day, Jesus and his disciples are together again on the other side of the lake in the town of Capernaum. And now news of Jesus' miraculous feast from the day prior had reached the ears of many other people by this point. And others have now joined in the search for their new king, this person they want to appoint as king. And finally, they track him down. They track Jesus and his disciples down to the synagogue in Capernaum and their bellies are empty again. It's the next day. And so as they approach Jesus, looking for their breakfast, he quickly addresses them before they can even say anything. He says, I know why you guys are here. I know you're, you're not here because of my teachings. I know you're not here because you saw God in my actions. You're here because I filled your stomachs for free. And you're hungry again. Now this is a very different tone than what they experienced the day prior. And so these people are a little surprised by this, but Jesus continues. He says to them, guys, don't work for and don't chase after food that spoils. If you want to invest your energy in something, chase after that which endures to eternal life. That which the Son of Man can provide for you. This type of food, the type of food that that endures to eternal life is the food that is guaranteed by the Father to last eternally. Now, they don't quite understand what he's talking about, but they're intrigued because there's this idea that Jesus could provide for them food that would never run out, that would never end. And so they go, Jesus, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to gain this food that that is eternal? And Jesus, speaking of himself in this case, says, what you need to do is place your belief in the one the Father has sent. Now, some of the people who are hearing this had not been there the day prior, and, and they had not experienced that miracle for themselves. And so if Jesus is asking them to throw in their lot with him, if Jesus is saying, I want you to go all in with me, that's what you need to do. You need to be all in with me. They're looking back at him and they say, if we're going to go all in, what sign or what miracle are you going to do for us? You know, our ancestors, the, these, our ancestors from long ago, they had manna from heaven in the wilderness. That's what God did for them. They had bread that came down from heaven given by God Himself. What are you going to do for us? Now, that Exodus event where the manna came down from heaven was, was a significant event in the history of Israel. Extremely significant to these people. Where through Moses, God provided manna. He, he provided bread from heaven that each morning they would go out and they would gather up and it would provide them with nourishment for the day. But only for the day, because if it, they kept it till the next, day, It would rot. And so every day they had to get up and gather and eat. And it was a daily, repeated step of faith and provision. Faith in God, God provides. That's where we get this term daily bread from this daily bread of God. And along with the daily bread and with the water from the rock that that God did through Moses and the quail that was sent by God and the protection he gave them, this is how God provided for his people for 40 years in the wilderness. An incredibly significant event for all of those who were gathered that day because it was part of their history. It was their relatives, their ancestors who had endured this hardship and had received this provision from God. This is their point of reference that they are now referencing towards Jesus. And Jesus is aware of this. He's aware that this is where they're coming from and this is what they're thinking in mind. And so he affirms it, but then he builds upon it as well. Where he says this, he says, Verily, truly, I tell you, It is not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, prophecy from the time of Moses had been established and had carried on throughout these generations that the day would come when one like Moses would appear and he would usher in the messianic era. And that one who was like Moses who would appear and usher in that era would duplicate these these miracles of Moses and even surpass them. And in this verse, in this passage here, Jesus is saying and making a messianic claim that they would understand very clearly. But here's how his argument breaks down. He says, you guys are using Moses as your point of reference. Well, Moses, he gave you bread from heaven. And that bread from heaven that he gave you, that provided for you physical life. But every day you got hungry again. Every day you had to get up and go gather again. And even though you gathered and ate every single day, all of you eventually died. However, Jesus said, I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. I come to give you something more than just physical nourishment. That bread you had yesterday that I miraculously provided, I I had great pleasure in doing that. I love providing for your needs, but that is not the reason that I came. The primary reason I came is to give you spiritual life. And if you will receive that spiritual life, if you will see me as the true bread that comes down from heaven, you will never hunger again. And if you never hunger again and receive it, you will live eternally with me as well. And here's the amazing thing about this is that whether we're looking at the physical provision that came from God through Moses or we look at the spiritual provision that came through Jesus, both of these are the gifts of God. Both of these are gifts that God pleasures in providing to those who he calls his sons and daughters. But I think we would agree the one from Jesus is so far better. Jesus is saying that he is the bread of life. Or more accurately, he's saying he is the bread that is living. Or he is the bread that gives life. And Jesus came down from heaven at the will of the Father to give life by paying the price for our sins. Because all of us have sinned. All of us, in so many ways, have proven that we are incapable of living up to God's standard. We are incapable of following God's plan established for us and for this world. And because of this, a separation exists between us and God. This separation comes because of our sin. But you know what? The separation between God and people is not unique to just Christianity. All religions have some expression of this division that exists where where people fall short. But the response of most religions in the world is, what must I do? What must I earn? What must I gain? How can I be better than I currently am to bridge that gap that I could find favor with God? And a view like that, a desire to gain right standing with God, a view like that as trying to find wholeness with God really comes from that mindset of life from God because we see ourselves as being under God. And the crowd asked Jesus this very question. Remember what they asked him when he talked about that bread that never ends? They goes, what must we do is their response because that's the frame of mind that they're coming from. But see, this is where all other religions fall short. Because there is nothing you can do. There is nothing within your ability to bridge that gap. Because we will never be good enough to achieve that. It would be like trying to wash a cup with dirty, filthy rags. It would never come clean. It would be like trying to pull yourself up with your own bootstraps. It's just an impossible thing to do. And this is where the saying, it has some challenges with it, but for the purpose of what we're talking about today, it, it matches this idea that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. Because God, Jesus, God in flesh, came to give his life, to pay the price for our sins, to do what we could not do. Because he came to make it possible that we can have assurance of eternal life and have life with God. As opposed to just looking at God as the giver of blessings. Under a conditional relationship. He invites us to have life with God. Where the goal is not the blessings. The goal is not the gifts from God. The goal is God. That we can walk with him. Because Jesus gave his life to pay the price for my sins. We can therefore respond with thankfulness. Because God, Jesus gave his life to pay for my sins, we can respond with obedience. So that regardless of the season of life we find ourselves in, regardless of the events that are going on in our lives that may lead us to joy or may lead us to sorrow, He walks with us. Regardless of the season we are in, He is the object of our desire. He is the one we cry out to. He is the one we place our trust in. He is the one who we can always respond to with an enduring thankfulness. Because His promises are true and His salvation is eternal does not fade and change like shadows. He cares for us. He's the great provider. And he made it possible for us to live eternally with him. Now, now this Thanksgiving, as we come together, there will be a variety of challenges we're all facing. There will be a a variety of things that have happened to us and blessings as well that exist in our lives. And if our thankfulness is solely dependent on upon life from God, then when times are tough, it's going to lead to questions. It's going to lead to doubts about God's goodness, even possibly about his reality. However, if we accept and remember that Jesus came to make a way that we could have life with God, then we'll see that he is always with us, that he walks through these situations and these challenges with us, and that he is the one who is always worthy of our thankfulness, which can endure eternally. And here's the coolest thing, is that when God becomes the goal we're pursuing, when our definition of our relationship with God is life with God through Jesus Christ, we lose out on nothing. We lose out on nothing because we gain eternal life and relationship with him, but at the same time, he takes great delight in pouring out his blessings and providing for us in the ways that we need the most. You see, the Father above, who is the creator and sustainer of all of creation, from the smallest atom to the brightest star. He knew you before you were born. He knows the number of heads that exist upon your hair this very second. He knows the challenges that you're facing. And he loves you. He loves you enough to give his one and only son that you may have a relationship with him eternally. And he delights to provide for you. How awesome is it? that we can have life with Jesus, if we will choose Jesus. And so I encourage you today to reflect upon that. As we are thankful for so many things, to take a step beyond the thing we're thankful for and reflect back upon the question of why. What is our motivation? What is the source of our thankfulness? Are we thankful for the item itself? Are we thankful for the one who provided it? Are we thankful even in the hard times? that we can walk through those with a church family, but we can walk through them also with the head of that church, Jesus Christ. And I pray that that will be the ultimate motivation for our thankfulness this day. I invite you to stand for closing prayer as the worship team comes to join us up on the platform again. Heavenly Father, we do have hearts of thanksgiving. And God, there is so much that we we can itemize and list and count that we can be thankful for. But God, may we see the source, may we see the motivation behind it, that it is not just things that come from you, but that it is life with you. That is the ultimate thankfulness that we have. We thank you for your love for us, your gift of salvation, and that you walk with us so faithfully, even in those moments when we may not be as faithful to you, Lord. God, help us to see this day where you are in our lives, in what we have, and in the days that are ahead.